If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and we have a little gem coming up from you. We are going directly to Russia and we're going to be talking to our old mate, my old mate, Sasha Kabanovsky, who you know is Ukrainian, has family over in Russia and Ukraine and will try and disentangle some of the chaos that is going on, John in Moscow, Varanesh. Yeah, the whole thing. Prigozhin, he, do you know what? Of all the stuff I've been watching the last week and everything I know about him, he, he's like the Kinnahans of Russia. Well, that's a terrifying thing. Yeah. Imagine the Kinnahans Absol- with an army. Absolutely. Like, he was just an out-and-out gangster. Like, before he became Putin's chef and the hot dog salesman and all that kind of stuff, he was put in prison for, I think it was 10 or 12 years or something like that, because he was the head of a street gang that used to go around beating the lard out of people, wow. robbing people at knife point. And there's a few famous cases, which I'm not going to go into, but it was just vicious, vicious stuff. I suppose that's why Putin kind of liked him as well and related to him. Well, the thing is, so what we're talking about is, unfortunately, for those of us who have friends in Russia, who've been who've been spent time over there, we're looking at a, a sort of a, a mafia state and a state run by mafiosis. Mafiosis yeah. in suits. Yeah. At least he doesn't even bother wearing the suit, which is which is yeah, fair yeah. But also, we're going to talk about that. But as you know, I've been on a bit of a European tour. You have? I've been <laughs> a bit of a European tour. We're going to bring you a another... another... You're railing like a student. I is. know, exactly. I'm going to bring you... We're going to bring you a podcast from Belgium. What's going on in Belgium? We're also... I'm just back from Berlin, John. I mean, I've been all over the place. Mm. And we've done a lovely conversation about what's happening in Germany. So we're going to, it's, it's the idea that Russia, Germany, the European Union are all enmeshed. And we tend to see them sometimes as separate issues, but they're all of one big piece. So the Russian story is the biggest story in the world right now, bar none. Yeah. The German story is the one that they're not telling, which is how dependent they are on Russia. And of course, the Belgian stroke EU Brussels-based story is how it all percolates out into all sorts of other areas. So it's fascinating times to be looking it's at tough. these things. 
But I all came, angles covered there. All ang- I came back to Dublin last night for Pride, not for Pride, but I was with Pride, with Pride. But I was in Dublin during the the big night for Pride, and it was amazing. The yeah. city was hot. The bars were round. Yeah, it was, it was buzzing. It was, it was really, buzzing. really buzzing. It was really buzzing. I just and because it was kind of hot and almost sort of continental in, in terms of its temperature, I thought, wow, Dublin could always be like this. It would yeah, be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it was it was just great. The whole and I'm just talking around, you know around the centre of town was just full of young people, full of fun, the whole thing, kind of outrageous costumes. Yeah, yeah. Going high camp, low camp, the whole thing. And of course then, what what do I do then last night, John? From all that fun and all that lovely, I go and see Beckett. Oh my God, Macker, you ruined it I go to the Olympia to see Happy Days, right? By Beckett, which is an amazing play, right? And you probably know... Sorry, sorry. Happy Days by Beckett. Beckett. Yes, exactly. Don't make sense. Exactly. Does not confuse. No, no, it's a deeply desolate and dystopian play, right? Uh, but I'll tell you, first of all, the performance, Siobhan McSweeney, the actor, right? Mm. You might remember from Derry Girls. Yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay, you know, Sister Michael from Derry Girls, right? Yeah. Unbelievable performance. I mean, outstanding, right? So the play is about a woman who's about 50 called Winnie mm-hmm. and her husband, Willie, who's about 60, right? Right. She is buried, she opens up, she's buried up to her chest in sand in the first act, right? Right. So you come on. Why? (laughs) Right. So, and then her husband, who's behind her all the time and just is a sort of a very bizarre creature who doesn't really say that much, right? So she is in this totally disastrous situation, right? So she's buried up to her waist in the first Mm. act, right? Mm. right? We can see this. She's totally helpless, right? And she just keeps talking, prattles on about, oh, I must forget this, I must this. And what is Beck's talking about? The futility of life, mm. right? the repetition of life, how we go and we do the same things. And Winnie tries to put the best face on everything. Right. And okay, she tries yeah. as much as possible. Just the to typical prattle Irish on. mother, actually. Well, it's a very Irish play. Yeah. Right. She's the sort of Irish ma that you hear all the time. Just, oh, I mustn't complain. And best thing here and what's in my bag and all yeah, that. Yeah. And um, but what it is, it's the it's Beckett talking about the uselessness of life, right? Yeah. And the rep- repetition of us and what we do to equip ourselves to just get through the day, right? Mm. And it is very, very dark. And then of course you think that's dark, you go for the interval. The second bar thing is not only is she then in the second bar up to her waist, she's up to her neck, <laughs> right? In sand. Okay. Yeah. And it's just this idea of somebody's life is going to be snuffed out in the most horrible, horrible way. And yet, despite knowing that, Winnie, as mm. in every human, continues to just simply go through the motions of chatting and looking at the right side. and all. And it's, is, it, is it because you don't have a choice? Well, I, I think it's about the innate courageousness of humans in the face of apocalypse and the face of destitution yeah. and and. I really liked it. And I, I, uh, I, I well, that's just me, John. You know, there is a part of me that gets into all that sort of stuff. You know, why not do Beckett? We've just you should have just gone for the pride I rave. I should have just gone to my hot pants. I should have just gone full on, happy. full on hot pants down the George on rollerblades. Roller right? Okay, I should have done this. And then I just go to watch Winnie and Willie in Happy Days in the Olympics. Exactly. But Siobhan McSweeney, an amazing performance. I mean, really, really amazing. Timing voice, humour, kind of just sort of an effervescent performance of something yeah. which is the least effervescent topic you could ever, ever imagine. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. it's interesting, I was coming out, I was thinking of Russia, right? You know, because you know, it's this idea of, you know, 
Beckett talks about destitution, desolation, the futility of life, the extraordinary complexity of the human condition, right? Mm. Then that's mm. what it's all about. Lots yeah. of Beckett yeah. stuff is about, and that's what makes it incredibly arresting once you delve a little bit deep into it, right? And you just thought about, you know, Russia, it's all the same thing. It's complexity of the human condition, the destitution of life. Like, think about the appalling murder of all these kids. And they are kids, right, on both sides. Soldiers, yeah. Soldiers yeah, on yeah, both yeah. sides. They're yeah. young men, right? Soldiers on both sides, right? And just the relentless apocalyptic vision that is southern Ukraine, that part of, of the world where these soldiers are getting killed. And what's the point of the whole thing? What is the point? I mean, we mm. could ask what's the point of it, but it's much, much deeper. So I was I was contemplating that. Yeah. And uh, I think what I would advise, John, I think the summer of reading Beckett, that would be up for you. There, there you go. I, I, do you know what? I've, I've got a few other books on my list. Before. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm washing my hair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's go to Russia. I was just telling you, I was in, I was in Berlin the night before, so I've been traveling around. Yeah. And in Berlin, there are lots and lots. It's the biggest expatriate Russian population in the world. Is right. in Berlin, right? So that many, many hundreds of thousands have moved there. And when you're in Berlin, you get a because it's Berlin, mm. you have a sense of history. Everywhere you walk, mm. there is the, I mean, it really is the burden of history. And I went on a great, I'm going to tell you next week, I went on a great Weimar Republic tour, walking tour. Walking tour, brilliant, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and do then, tell us about that. I'll tell yeah. you about that next week, but let's get in. But I mean, you're just very much, much more so than you are here. You're aware that everything that happens in Russia affects Europe and the road directly goes through from Moscow, goes through Berlin. To Brussels, and you really get that sense. Yeah. So let's go. Let's try and figure out what the hell has been happening in Russia. Let's go and talk to Sasha Kavanovsky. Now, a couple of nights ago, I was sitting in a restaurant in Prenzlauer Berg in Berlin, one of the probably more beautiful parts of the former GDR East Berlin capital. Now it's become very, very trendy, and I think it's was trendy for a while, and obviously if I was sitting there, it's not trendy. It's become far too uh, gentrified. There's nothing trendy or edgy about it. Um, and I was sitting with my friend, Sasha Kabanovsky, who you will know from the podcast and from Kilkonomics, and our trip to Ukraine together in January. So Sasha and I have uh, talked about this part of the world for a long, long time on various trains and buses and then dodgy modes of transport all over the former Soviet Union. Sasha, how are you this morning? Great. <laughs> okay, tell me. We'll give the backdrop in a few minutes, the background, what this all means, what Wagner means, etc. But what has been happening? What's your take? What's your take on what is going on? What, what's going on is, is a mess, right? It's, it's an absolute mess. And I think that over the last, well, since... Friday, Saturday. We were on a roller coaster ride provided by the former chef, Prigozhin. So he started a revolt, a popular revolt. He basically made incredible headway because uh, there was absolutely, well, minimal opposition from the Ministry of Defense, but he was welcomed into Rostov, into Voronezh, everywhere the Wagner Group entered without a fight. The Interior Ministry troops were basically melted away. And one had to, or at least one wanted to believe that this is going to change fundamentally the political situation in, in Moscow, panic, excitement. <laughs> and then he just 
went away. Yeah. <laughs> Cut a deal with Lukashenko. And at, at the end of the day, everyone is just scratching their heads, um, wondering what this was all about. Because it seemed like he had played the cards that he was dealt uh, exceptionally well. He took the gamble at the right time. And it looked like he had a plan. And at the end of the day, he, re- he resembles Joker from Batman, who said, uh, I'm like a dog chasing a car. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught one. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> no, because because he, he had the keys to the palace in his hand. That's what it looks like. It looks like. Putin left Moscow, regardless of what the Kremlin line is at this point. Uh, he got on his plane. His plane was registered as going towards St. Petersburg. Senior officials basically disappeared. You didn't have the propagandists stepping up and basically, I mean, every, they were just pleading, please, let's think about uh, the country as a whole. So it didn't paint a picture of a regime that, that actually has control or has it together. It's pathetic. And and the long-term implications, no matter what, so Prigozhin, I think if he truly, if he truly cut a deal in which supposedly he is relying on guarantees from Putin and Lukashenko to keep him alive, then we all know what those guarantees are worth. And and he's probably going to be pushing up daisies in the next month or, or two. Well, I mean, I don't need to, but they, I mean, they have to kill him. They have to assassinate well, him. I mean, there's, this there's, is, this there's, is, no, there's no other way that they can survive if he's sitting there, or if the guy who... The guy who orchestrates a mutiny kind of can cut a deal and is put over there in, in, in Belarus for a while. That profoundly undermines... If you're a dictator, which Putin is, and Lukashenko, you can't have this. You cannot survive these sort of things. And, and we know historically that the one sin Putin never forgives is, is treachery. This is the one thing that, that he has a visceral dislike for. The, the speculation is that Wagner will continue to exist in some form or another, dislocate its base of operations into Belarus and continue to do the whatever evil it does in Africa and, and Latin America and, and uh, Syria. But at the same time, he agreed to allow members of the Wagner Group who want to sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense basically do that as well. He, he basically drew up the curtain on everything that is wrong with Russia. Yeah. He showed sort of the bare naughty parts, right? Yeah. And now he just goes away, but the bare naughty parts stay. So let's look at those. Let's look at those because that's what everyone's saying is like, whatever deal was done, whatever machinations are behind the curtain, the curtain has been pulled back. And what it reveals is chaos. It looks to me like chaos. Well, it's very hard to believe that if this was happening, when most observers from the West really believed that Putin had strength and that he had the stamina for a long war. And this is something that we were all basically when discussing the future of the war in Ukraine with Russia, this was the real threat, right? A long drawn out conflict, nuclear weapons, and uh, the West's stomach for a prolonged exposure to this disaster, right? And what Prigozhin has done is showed that Putin's grasp on power is, is, is very tenuous. I mean, very tenuous. There is nothing behind the curtain or, or very little behind the curtain. He shot down, what was it, four helicopters and one airplane uh, yesterday during this uprising. Twelve pilots died yesterday. Russia hasn't lost this many aircraft and pilots in, in, in a single day in the entire war with Ukraine, I believe. 
and then to turn back and say, well, we didn't shed any blood. We're, we're going home and, and, and everything is fine. And everyone pretends like this is fine, that nothing, that nothing happened. You know, they, they dug up roads leading to Moscow, <laughs> just destroyed roads in a panic. And it's this panic. They weren't in control. I mean, to have Lukashenko actually negotiate this sort of a settlement. So Putin didn't negotiate. Putin didn't, didn't participate in resolving this issue. He just ran away in, in his, I guess, recent style that he's developed over the last five years. But can I ask you, what do you think, uh, at a certain stage, Prigozhin must have been threatened with something in order to cut a deal? That there must have been something in the back of his head that said, I'm not sure I have the stamina are the manpower for this. And I've already opened up the accusation of treason. So I know the end game is my death or assassination. This deal might save my skin, might save my life. In the back of his head, he must have been afraid of something that the Russian Federation could have launched at him. Because otherwise, I can't understand what's going on. And then I want you to explain to me, Putin talked about the stab in the back Tsar Nicholas, 1917. I want to talk about all that sort of idea and the fact that this is constantly dwelling on Putin's head, this extraordinary obsession with history and historical moments. But just let's go back. There there must be some threat because it's like anything. You do a deal when somebody has something to offer you and you're slightly unsure of your position because he's done, in effect, he's just said, I'm going into exile. I'm backing down. Well, quite frankly, I cannot imagine. So you launch a coup, right? You're moving 25,000 or 30,000 troops into Russia and go marching towards Moscow. You are welcomed in, in all of these cities. You're faced with no resistance. The reason why you launch a coup is that you feel isolated. Apparently, he was trying to get a meeting with Putin for the last two months, and Putin has ignored him. And so... The speculation is that he became nervous and he thought that this was the only, the, the, an uprising was, was the only way to survive. So you do all of this. You see that you're, you're successful at it. I can't possibly imagine what the Kremlin may have had on him to just force him or incentivize him to simply just go away. I mean, how many people did he set up? He's a dead man. Politically, I, I think militarily, you don't forgive this type of stuff, right? I mean, if you sign on to a coup, you're you're in. Yeah, you're you're in. Yeah, you're, 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 right? you're in. One hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the, the mere sort of decision to rise up against a dictator, and Russia can't even do a coup right. right? It's like it's a good coup gone to waste. <laughs> but, 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 but let's let's let, let's go and talk about Putin now, right? The overwhelming idea is that he is weakened. But the other thing is, he's still there. He's still there. And weakened or not, he is in control still. Or, or am I getting it wrong? Well, obviously he's there, right? So you're not, you're not getting it wrong. The level of control that he has, I, I'm not so sure. Because he hasn't had a good three years, but the last, the last sort of three or four weeks have been disastrous. He had a disastrous Petersburg Economic Forum. He had a disastrous meeting with these Russian ultra-nationalist propagandists who basically, after the meeting, went out and, and, and lambasted him for being out of touch, for being completely irrational and, and, and silly. He looks weak in every single public appearance that he makes. 
at this point in time, maybe it's not his own political, his personal charisma and his personal sort of force of personality that's keeping him in power. But basically, because people can't agree or the power elites can't agree on on an alternative candidate. Yeah. So it's like it's like it's like a, it's like you see that in companies where the boards can't really figure out who's the next guy in. So there's a transition period. There's all sorts of chaos. There's deals done, even though people don't have the means to actually effect or execute those deals. And essentially, he's in power, but he's not in power. Well, it's a very strange situation to predict because I'm sure that there's a lot that's happening behind behind closed doors. And I think that people are desperately trying to, to find a solution. They know that they can't find a solution with Putin in power. And the other question is, you know, which Putin is actually in power? Because apparently there are three or four or six of them. <laughs> so it's, it's like, will the real Putin please stand up? It, it's become a circus and, and you know, it's like the hall of mirrors, right? You're never sure of what you're looking at and what you're dealing with. But the one thing that we can be sure of is that this is not a good situation. This is not a strong position, which he finds himself in. And the tenuousness of his grasp on power is is certainly greater than anyone had expected. I hope no, I mean, that anyone had expected. Like, absolutely. I mean, this time last year or, you know, whatever it was, 16 months ago, he was, he was on the gates. He was at the gates of Kiev with his army. And now a renegade army was at the gates of Moscow. So, I mean, this doesn't look good at any, at any, any way. Hiya, Sasha. I just wanted to ask you a question. It's a little bit conspiratorial, but I was wondering, was this whole thing just purely internal or was there a Western element to this? Like, was Prigozhin kind of being encouraged along the way with promises or whatever? It doesn't seem that way. The New York Times uh, wrote an article today basically saying that the U.S. was aware of, of a planned uprising by Prigozhin, but it doesn't look like they were actually encouraging it or, or had anything to do with it. And quite frankly, just the whole way that this, that this thing has played out. So there, there's another theory that this was all staged, right, that he was in cahoots with Putin from the very beginning. But that's even less likely because this, you know, unless they're complete morons, right? At the end of anything that's staged or planned, you, you actually expect to be better off all around, right? Prigozhin should be better off. Putin should be better off. The country should be better off. And this benefited no one. I mean, this benefited no one. This, this is the first time that if you're looking at Russia and if you're trying to analyze Russia, basically my mind is blown. And everyone, I follow every single analyst who's covering Russia. And basically, it, it looks like every brain has short-circuited because there's absolutely no <laughs> logic or reason to what happened. I wrote two pieces on my Substack yesterday. In my second one, I embarrassed myself by actually ascribing real political cunning to, to Prigozhin. And, and at the end of the day, you know, a chef is just a chef. I mean, and, and, and just a really bad one, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrible. A hot I mean, dog it's, it's chef. Horrible. That's what he was. Chef. Tell me about your family in Moscow. Tell me, we were out with another old friend of ours the other night, also a family still in Moscow. How are they feeling when you're chatting to them? I and mean, what, what is going on in Russia? Fear, confusion, no one, under, well, first of all, the flow of information was we when we got in touch with them. So they didn't really understand what was happening because because there was uh, there was a, a limitation on, on access to the Internet and, and the various news sources. Uh, the official news sources basically said nothing except for, OK, there's an uprising that Putin is taking care of. So 
when we filled them in on the details, obviously this was shocking and frightening. And what happened in, in Russia is that all of the flights out of Moscow were sold out at ridiculous prices, at like four or five times of Thursday's prices, right? Yeah. People started uh, exchanging rubles for dollars at uh, 115 rubles to the dollar, which you know before was like 81, 82, and a general panic. So people were trying to leave the big cities to go anywhere anywhere else. So these flights are not out of Russia. These are to Ekaterinburg, to Perm, to Petersburg. Well, the flights are out of Russia. The flights were to Yerevan, to Ankara, to Istanbul, okay, okay. anywhere that, where you can still fly directly out of Russia. So the near abroad and whatever country actually has direct links to Moscow. And the people who couldn't get out of the country were basically looking to get out of the cities in anticipation of this performance that never happened. But yes, there's fear, there's confusion, and there's absolutely the one thing that is much more important, in my opinion, right? Because fear and confusion in, in times of, of war and, and political discord is to be expected. But it's the sense of hopelessness. Every single family who has a child does not see that child. They're looking for a way to get the children out so that they can actually have a sense and the hope of having a future because there is an absolute absence of hope within Russia. And that's the most important thing. No matter what happens in, in the Kremlin, the sense is that Russia is not a place where we want to have our children for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And that's apparent in the exodus of, of smart young kids. None of the children whom my kids started school with are still in Moscow. That's amazing. None of them. None of them. They speak to each other. They're still in touch. Some are in Amsterdam, some are in Berlin, some are in the U.S., some are in, in the U.K., but none of them are in Moscow. And these are brilliant kids. Basically, we're helping a distant friend of ours get her son, who was a gold medalist in international physics competitions, to get him out of Russia, it desperately get him out of Russia into any university that would take him, just not to, for him not to be there. And that's the desperation of Russia uh, for the future. In, in April, they had the lowest birth rate, I think, for the last 30 or 40 years. 95,000 children. Only 95,000 children were born in In, in, in a country of 140 million. That's extraordinary. In a country of 140 million that has lost, by any estimate, from 100,000 to 200,000 men and soldiers during the last year. The thing is, it's, it's carnage for Russian culture, for Russian society, for Russian politics. Now, let us, folks, we were in Ukraine together twice in the last while. When you're talking to our Ukrainian mates, what are they saying? I mean, Ukraine has gone from euphoria, I would say, on Friday, Saturday to a bit of Sunday, thinking, okay, Russia's divided. This is exactly what we hoped for. This is exactly what our game was. Our end game was this would actually atrophy. What are the Ukrainians thinking this week? Uh, I think I spoke to my lovely aunt, who you've met. <laughs> yes, I have. Absolute <laughs> sweetheart. Absolute sweetheart. So she, she, she was grateful that last night was... The first quiet night without night raids for the last, I think, long while, for a month or two. I think that there's obviously disappointment because on Saturday when I spoke to her and I spoke to people, uh, my friends in, in Kiev, there was sort of this common sense of relief and <laughs> real euphoria for obvious reasons, right? The, the expectation was that, that this was going to end the war relatively quickly and hope, not expect hope. 
yeah. put it this way. I think that there's obviously that the hope for a quick end to the war has faded a bit, but the euphoria has still remained because this is a different enemy that they are fighting. And I think that the perception in the West, I, I can't obviously speak for it, but I think that the perception, if you are actually looking at Russia seriously and looking at the threat of Russia and, and what it means for, for the war in Ukraine, you're looking at a different enemy today than you were yesterday. And so I think that, you know, policies and support will adjust accordingly, whether one way or another. But at the end of the day, right, I mean, who do you actually negotiate with? I mean, even if we're talking about negotiating, right? So everything has changed. In my sense, it's become, I wouldn't say more complex. I think that, that actually there are more options on the table now in terms of how we can approach Russia. And I definitely think that there's more flexibility. Because, you know, when you, when you see the weakness within the government, there are obviously options that are on the table that have now become or will now become much more amenable to the idea of, of a shift in policy and the shift in rulers. And, and, and finally, on that point, right, we're talking about succession. We're talking about who's next, right? This is where something like this shifts the debate to is not how long does Putin last, but, you know, how does he exit the stage or how might he exit the stage? Is there a sense now in Russia that there is somebody else going to emerge from within the Putin ranks, from within the, the aristocracy, so to speak, that will actually maybe change the whole course of the next couple of months? Is there a sense that Putin is so badly weakened now that it's only a matter of time before he goes? Um, like Izzy Sar Nicola. So, so what he said in his speech interests me because he was yeah. basically saying that I do not want to be Tsar Nicholas. I do not want to be the ruler whose troops are defeated at the front or were being defeated at the front, which is exactly what in the First World War, whose troops came back and who decided, look, we're going to have to create the environment for peace. And then, of course, Lenin comes in and changed the whole game. But he was, amazingly, Putin was talking about that spectacularly chaotic 18-month period of Russian history from, let's say, 1916 to 1918. And he was positioning himself as the czar. That's what interests me. Well, the, the period lasted much longer than 1918 I, I know, because but, 1918 but, was just the start of the Civil War and the Civil War but, took 20 million lives. But he's locating himself at the beginning of that. On the wrong side. <laughs> so this is a KGB agent, right, <laughs> who associates himself with a regime that basically the people who formed the, the agency that bred him <laughs> tore down. So his grasp of history is, is very tenuous and, and his, he re rewrites history to his which, which every Russian ruler has done, which is what rewrites the Russian history to fit his own needs. He, he was basically appealing to Russians. The thing that he understands is that after the 90s, after sort of the revolution of 1918, Russians deathly fear real sort of internecine war, civil war. And this is the one fear that he can always appeal to in order to prevent the, a popular uprising or to try to build popular opposition to a popular to a, to a civil war but you see after his appeal you look at what what was happening in Rostov you look at what was happening in Voronezh and the people were welcoming Wagner so the people don't really care about this I mean it's it's about obvious. Peter the Great or the Tsar or wherever no, no. exactly I mean this has gone beyond that appeal and the funny thing is that if you look at the videos from Rostov today when the police cortege is returning back to the city who ran away when Wagner 
entered uh, Rostov. The people are out in the streets screaming shame and screaming traitors at the police officers. And therefore at the regime. At the regime. And, and this was unthinkable before Saturday because you're looking at 15 to 20 years in jail. So something has flipped the switch. And, and this appeal to 1970, it's weakness. And he looked extremely weak doing it. And then he disappeared for the entire day. And then Lukashenko came in and he, he negotiated. Who the hell is Lukashenko at the end of the day? I mean, you know, he's the guy who, who every month takes a visit to Moscow begging for money, or yeah. at least he was in the past. But he does have experience in, in surviving attempted coups. He does have extraordinary experience in surviving attempted coups. I mean, he was a goner two and a half years ago, and he, and he managed Absolutely. to come back. But he did have Putin behind him, right? Yeah. And he wasn't facing a military uprising, and he wasn't in a war. Sasha, this is a... This is a, a fascinating moving story we will leave it there we're going to come back to studio john and i of course will tease it out and we'll solve it clearly in the next in the next five minutes well if you ever come back to berlin that's the best place we, we will solve everything <laughs> i just say i'll just give you a picture with myself and sasha and an old friend of ours nastia in an italian restaurant that looked italian and then suddenly they all started speaking russian together and they were all they were all ukrainians pretending to be italians and i thought Perfect, perfect. Listen, Sasha, this is not the first or last time we will be talking to you, I, th- I suspect, in the next couple of weeks. So this is going to be, this is the biggest story in the world. And it has a yes. massive, co- it's the biggest story in the world. There's nothing else that's as big as this. It mm. has huge economic, social, political, military, geostrategic consequences. And it's changing by the hour. So we will talk to you very soon. Maddening. Maddening. And exciting. And exciting. Okay, Sasha, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, David. John, talk to you guys later. Thank you. So I was just thinking while you were talking there, fascinating stuff, of course, but I was just thinking that I had an image of Putin being Logan Roy. When you're talking about succession. <laughs> there's all and this, there's it was, Kendall's. <laughs> it was, when it was per, Prigozhin, Kendall. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, Ted. <laughs> A Connor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But let's talk about all the other stuff that he brought up there because it's uh, fascinating well, and stuff. And it's the most important story in the world. Absolutely, after this. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As you say, Mac, this is the most important story at the moment. Yeah. In Europe, in the world. In the world. And I, it's like there was a whole load of stuff that Sasha was talking about there that we'll... we'll you know, it's an ongoing story. So Go on, say unpack. Your unpack. American. Like, unpack. take a deep dive. Take a deep fix and dive. No, but the one thing that really struck me in that was his point about the birth rate being so incredibly low, which speaks volumes, of course. Well, I mean, you know, the birth rate is everything in economics. You know, there's the expression that demography is destiny, mm. right? That basically the destiny of any country, any region is demography. How many people you have, how many babies you have, et cetera, like that. What you've seen... One of the most striking, striking phenomena in the last 30 years has been the collapse in the birth rate of former Soviet countries, right? Right. And people have children when really? they're... Sorry, in, in all of them? All like of them, all of them. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, well, all well, those... The, well, I mean, European Soviet countries. The European, well. and, but the stands... All of right, the yeah, former yeah, Yugoslavia, yeah. all the... No, not the stands. So oh, sorry, the Muslim, okay. Muslim population, the stands has increased dramatically. That's what I thought, yeah. So it's yeah. a European phenomenon. Okay. So... All the former Soviet countries, all the former Warsaw Pact countries, mm. what you saw is this collapse in the birth rate. And it's a very deeply, deep, deep psychological thing. So birth rates in general go through two phases. The first phase is when a country is very poor, they tend to have a huge amount of children. Mm. Okay, and As countries get richer, that tends typically to come with women working, tends typically to come with available contraception, Mm. tends to come with planned parenthood, right? The yeah. People plan their lives, right? Yeah. And so what you see then is the country gets wealthier, populations tend to fall. But then you get to a certain stage, and this is where Western Europe was, let's say, from the 70s, 80s, etc., and the United States, that any increase or decrease in the population is a very accurate barometer of perceptions of optimism about the future. Mm. So countries that are optimistic about the future, i.e. Ireland, for example, yeah. continue to have very quite high birth rates, right, in comparison. But what you saw in the former Soviet republics and countries, former communist countries, was the total trauma of the 1990s, right, where people had gone from a reasonably stable life to absolutely nothing, mm. was reflected not in GDP and all that. We know all that, but it was in the birth rate. So basically... Women in Central and Eastern Europe stopped having children. Why did they stop having children? Because they didn't want to bring children into this world. It's just the pure uncertainty of everything. The uncertainty and the expense yeah. and everything, right? That, yeah. So you see a it's huge It's completely understandable. And of course, nowhere is that more dramatic than in Russia. But of course, for Russia, what you have is it's, it's in European Russia. You see the collapse in the birth rate. Mm. Whereas in the Caucasus and those areas which are much more Muslim, mm. you see a much higher increase in the birth rate. Okay. So that's something that demographers talk about, you know, that what's Russia going to look like in 50 years' time ethnically. Yeah. But I think that's a very interesting point that Sasha picked up on is that, you know, countries that have no hope in the future see that reflected in two things. One is the mass emigration of the middle classes, which is what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the flights out and people well, paying you know, a fortune I, for them. I remember working with Russians in the 1990s, John, Russian mathematicians who had got out, who left after the collapse of the Yeltsin sort of regime and and, and, and that period when, when Yeltsin was in power and this society was totally convulsed. And I worked with mathematicians who were so brilliant 
at mats. Like they were off the scale. Mm. And they were a complete loss to Russia. You yeah. know, those people will never come back to Russia. And they had been trained by, educated by, paid for by the Russians and the Soviets. Yeah. And all the upside was garnered by wherever country they landed it, right? Yeah. And that's what Sasha's saying is that, you know, a country that loses hope in the future is an incredibly desolate place, number one, but number two, an incredibly dangerous place. Because yeah. it's when you lose hope, you kick out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's I think, and that, I think that's what's happening. So we will watch this space, Johnny Boy. We will watch Indeed. this space. Uh, I know yeah. that, like the Skibberine Eagle many years ago, that the Putin regime are listening to the Dave McQueen podcast and they are on Which alert. we're banned there. We are banned. That's <laughs> true, we're banned in Russia. Anyway, that's true. All right, we'll talk to you on Thursday. Thursday.